my name is Dave, and as far as the golf tournament's concerned, I think you hold the club by the thin part. Is that right? That's about all I can authoritatively say. Um, but look at it. It is a beautiful day outside. Pastor Phil Vaughn is not here. He is out of town on a bucket list hiking expedition with, uh, it's actually Donna, his wife's uh, bucket list, not his, but he's there to being supportive in Grand Tetons National Park. And the Denver Broncos kick off in about 10 minutes. So here you are, right? With all these good reasons not to be, and yet you are here in person or you are here online. Perhaps you're watching this after the fact after the Broncos have hopefully won and you're uh, engaging this later. If so, good for you. Good for you. It must be that you are here to hear a word from God, yes? Hopefully, that is exactly what will happen, that the Lord has something specific for you from his word today. I've been praying that, and Phil Vaughn is praying that. I know that because he texted me at about 8 o'clock this morning. said, hey, praying for you. Praying that the sermon will be somewhere north of terrible and that people will hear, understand, and put into practice what God has for them from his word. So let's jump right in. Uh, This is a reading from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you want to turn there in your Bible or on your device, that's great. Um, If if not, that's all right too because we have the text right here. This is Ecclesiastes 3. It may be familiar to some of you. There is... A time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to uproot. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to tear down, and a time to build. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search, and a time to give up. A time to keep, and a time to throw away. A time to tear, and a time to mend. A time to be silent, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. In verse 11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. This is beautiful and mysterious Hebrew poetry from the pen of the teacher, believed by many to be the aged King Solomon of the Old Testament, the wisest person in the Bible whose name was not Jesus. And he's telling us something very important, something that we really need to understand, but it's hard to understand. What does this mean? And... Why should I care? Well, let me try to explain this succinctly. I attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill back a long time ago. Um, It was a fantastic undergrad experience for me. And if you've never been to that part of North Carolina, let me tell you, basketball is a major religion. Chapel Hill and nearby Duke and NC State and all that. And this is the basketball court at Granville Towers which was my residence hall. It's where I lived. And happily, it was also where the men's varsity basketball team was housed, Granville Towers. Only they had their own separate wing, you know, because they couldn't be mingling too much uh, with the rest of the student population. I'm told because after every big win, they would get a bunch of marriage proposals. That's what they said. 
So the basketball players were housed separately, but in the same residence hall. And they, of course, uh, they were big men on campus, metaphorically and literally. And they had their own practice gym, so they didn't really need this court. But once or twice a year, after the basketball season was done, in the spring, they would come out and put on a show and play pickup basketball with whoever else was out there. And this day, my spring semester, my freshman year, I remember like it was yesterday. This court was ringed with hundreds and hundreds of spectators hanging off this wall and on this fence, completely ringed with people because word had gotten out. The varsity basketball players, the men's players are coming out. And there were some guys on the court and they were playing and then the varsity guys, some of them, not all of them, but some of them came striding out. And uh, this was very exciting for me, not just because I wanted to see those guys play, but also because a friend of mine was on the court and he was going to get to play them. His name was Ken, and he was a couple of years older than I was, and he was in a, we were in a Bible study together, and so I was Ken's friend. And so I thought, hey, I'm going to get to watch Ken play against the men's varsity basketball team, and whether it goes great or lousy, this is going to be a wonderful story that I can tell decades later in Colorado. So sure enough, the game starts, and uh, the varsity guys, uh, they're, they're just, you know, going half speed. You know, this is, this is uh, they can score at will. Uh, they're just kind of messing around. But Ken is not. Ken is trying to play it cool, but he is hyper, hyper focused. He is so pumped up. Because th- this is the best level of basketball competition he's ever played against and will ever play again. And I think he played in high school, but he also had a big audience, bigger audience than he's used to for playing basketball. So Ken's trying really hard. And he's acquitting himself pretty well. In fact, at one point, down there on this far end, the varsity players got the basketball rebound and they passed it ahead to a guy who was dribbling past half court and he just kind of made a casual pass to another player and my friend Ken stole the ball and he intercepted it and started dribbling back the other way. And this was wonderful. I was excited for Ken. But Ken had a not small problem because between Ken and the basket he was dribbling toward, loomed J.R. Reed. J.R. Reed, the starting center for the University of North Carolina men's basketball team. J.R. Reed, who had been on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a freshman. J.R. Reed, who this year was an All-American and who that summer would be drafted into the NBA and play as an NBA player for years after that. J.R. Reed, six feet, nine inches, 255 pounds of sheer basketball badness loomed over Ken as he approached this basket. And J.R. Reed, alone, because his other teammates had run ahead down the court, J.R. made a proclamation from on high. Because when you're six feet nine, anything you say comes from on high. J.R. Reed announced, for the benefit of his teammates, but also for all the benefit of us spectators, he said three words as Ken came dribbling towards him with a basketball. He said, I got it. And we all heard it. And we all knew what J.R. Reed meant. What J.R. was just proclaiming was, no matter what this diminutive white boy with the basketball attempts to do, he will not be putting said ball through this hoop on my watch. I got it. Well, Ken heard this. Because he had to. Everybody heard it. And wisely, 
decided not to drive the hole with JR in his way. Instead, he decided he was going to pull up for an 18-foot jump shot that I'm sure he thought was wide open. Sure enough, he stopped, he pulled up, he shot the ball, and J.R. Reed, true to his word, went and got it. Boom! Such that several of us spectators had to run into the parking lot chasing the bouncing ball so that play could resume. Now, what's the point of this? Well, back to Ecclesiastes 3. Solomon, the teacher, is telling us that God has given an order and a plan to life. In other words, God's got it. No matter what happens, no matter what's going to happen, no matter what has happened, God's got it. And not just in a reactive way like J.R. Reed was going to get this ball. No matter what happens, in an ordered way, God has given an order and a plan to life. We live in an ordered universe not a universe of chaos. Solomon, the teacher, lists 14 extremes suggesting totality of life. Time to be born, time to die, time to tear, time to mend. Time for this, time for that. And each one has its appropriate, beautiful time. It's like God has this big cosmic iPad and he's just using it to order the universe. Nothing happens that escapes his notice. And nothing happens outside of his permitted will. There's an ebb and a flow in these verses we've just read. Kind of a rhythm to life's events that kind of sounds pleasing, kind of sounds reassuring. But there are two disturbing implications that I'd like to point out. The first is that we dance to a tune not of our own making. You and I are not in control like we like to believe Verse 2 says, there's a time to be born and a time to die. You know what? Those are the two biggest events of our life. And we don't have much control. We don't have, hopefully we won't have much control over the second part. The time to be born, we had no control over that. You had no control over that. You didn't even get a vote. It just happened. You were initiated by birth. You had nothing to do with that. You and I, unless the Lord comes sooner, will be terminated by death Hopefully, we'll have nothing to do with that. You could be the president of the United States of America and not be the head of your own household. You could be a great military general who commanded thousands of soldiers and end up your days in a care facility where other people have to help you with your most basic bodily functions. We dance to a tune not of our own making which actually can be kind of freeing, if you think about it. Stop trying to control what you can't control. Stop trying to control what you can't control. That takes way too much energy. For instance, what other people think about you. You can't control that. What other people say about you, especially when you're not in the room, you can't control that. So die to trying to control that. Be free of that. Understand that you can't control a lot of what you might like to, might think you do. You know, understanding this helps my prayer life, actually. Knowing there's a lot in the world in my life I can't control, and so I pray. I can't control what my children do, the decisions they make, so I pray for them. I can't control how uh, ministry is going to go. 
so I pray for that. We dance to a tune not of our own making. First disturbing implication is we're not in control. Second disturbing implication, nothing we pursue has any permanence. Nothing lasts. There's a time to build and a time to tear down. There's a time to be born and a time to die. The teacher is stressing the brevity and the impermanence of our activities. You think things are going to last. You work hard to make things that last. They don't last. How many of you have ever visited Richmond, Virginia? Capital of Virginia? A few of you? Yep. Uh, I've been to Richmond several times because I grew up in the Carolinas, and so every once in a while I'd find myself in Richmond on the way somewhere else or visiting friends there. And uh, when I first saw Richmond, Virginia, I remember very clearly visiting Monument Avenue, which is this big thoroughfare right down the center of town. And Monument Avenue, when I first saw it, had these very impressive statues of figures from the Confederacy in the American Civil War. Jefferson Davis, big statue. Stonewall Jackson, big statue. Robert E. Lee, big statues. Erected in 1890. Statue had been there since anybody could remember. And then in 1996, they added another statue. Arthur Ashe. And I thought, that's a little incongruous. I love Arthur Ashe. He's a native of Richmond. I get it. Super tennis player and a class act. But Confederate war statue, Confederate war statue, Confederate war statue, American tennis player. I don't, never made sense to me. Well, today, as of about two weeks ago, Arthur Ashe is the only statue remaining on Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> That's right. You think things are going to last? You think a big statue of Robert E. Lee would last in Richmond, Virginia? He's gone. Statue's been taken down. A statue made of stone and iron and all these inscriptions and all this prestige center of town, gone. She took it away. Nothing lasts. The problem of permanence. How many of you can uh, name all four of your grandparents, biological grandparents? How many of you can name I can do that. You can do Yeah, a lot of you can do that. How many of you can name all eight of your biological great-grandparents? Few of you. Okay. What were their jobs? What did they spend all their time doing? I could do this all day. What about your great-great-grandparents? 16 of those, right? These are important people. You know, you don't exist in your present form without those people. And yet, for most of us, we don't know much about them. All the time that they spent working, all the time they spent raising family, raising your ancestors, and we don't really know much about them. Because they're not here. It's a problem of permanence. Things we want to last and think are going to last don't last. I was uh, got to speak here at Castle Oaks Covenant uh, back in the fall of 2020, as Josh alluded to, and then I went away for a time because I was pastoring uh, a small church in the foothills, and I was the interim pastor, and that church had, had been there since 1953. Uh, they had a pastor who'd been there for 33 years, and uh, they, he retired, and they brought me in to be the interim pastor while they searched for a new permanent pastor. And this all looked great on paper. And this sounded great. And I thought, this is going to be great. Well, there's a lot of story that I could tell about it. But suffice to say, six weeks ago today, August 8th, 
that church took a vote to close its doors. 1953-2021. They don't meet anymore. They didn't last. Is what you're giving your life to, what you're giving your time to, what you're stressing about going to last? I mean, how secure is your job? Those of you who work outside the home or work from the home or work inside the home as a, as a parent, it's been a hard year for, for work. I understand that. Hard year and a half. And you think, well, family uh, will last. You know, you raise your kids, you birth your kids, and you raise your kids until they turn 18, and then they, they leave the nest, they leave the house. Or worse, they come back and live with you again. Maybe come to think of it, some things are permanent. But Solomon declares that nothing lasts, nothing is permanent under heaven. Hold that thought. What Solomon wants us to understand is God's got it. He says God's got it even when we don't get it. God's got it even when you and I don't get it. This is verse 10. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God's got it even when we don't get it. We can't understand what God's up to from beginning to end. We can't see his big picture, discern his plans or his patterns. His purposes are outside our control and often outside our comprehension, unless he decides to let us in on something. But this is a reassuring part. God's got it, even when we don't get it. Life's events are unfolding according to God's plan. Life is leading somewhere. History is going somewhere. That's important to remember, because without God, life has no meaning, and you and I have no significance. If there is no God. But with God, life has purpose. Life has meaning. Some of you may have seen this image before. This is a a tapestry, front and back. This is a tapestry of a crown as it's meant to look. But this is the backside of it. And I've always been struck by how this works with tapestries. Because this is a mess. This makes no sense to me. You have threads appearing and disappearing and going outside the edges in different colors and it doesn't make any discernible shape or pattern. And this is what we see in life. This is what we see in the news. But this is what God is doing. He's weaving a tapestry. And it looks like a mess to us, but he's doing something that we can't fathom, but it's going to turn out amazing because God's got it even when we don't get it picture yourself on an ocean liner say you wake up on an ocean liner and you don't know where you are I don't know why just go with it you're on the ocean liner you're in a cabin you think wait a minute I don't know where I am or why I'm here or where we're going so you go out on the deck and you find a steward and you say excuse me sir I know this is a strange question but can you tell me where we're going And he says, why, certainly, you're aboard the Queen Mary, and we're en route across the Atlantic Ocean to London. 
We'll be docking at Southampton in less than a day. And you might think, well, okay. I don't remember why I chose to do that, but here I am. London. Maybe I've never been to London. I might like to tour London. I might just see Big Ben. I might see Houses of Parliament. I might visit Buckingham Palace. Why? I might have high tea while I'm in London. I might make a friend in London. I might do some shopping in London. There's all kinds of purpose that can come from you're going somewhere like London. But say the steward doesn't tell you that. Say you come out of your cabin and you say, excuse me, sir, I know this is a strange question, but where are we going? He says, well, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere? No, no, we're not going anywhere. We're just making big circles in the Atlantic Ocean. He said, well, what's going to happen? He says, nothing's going to happen. We're going to keep making circle after circle after circle until we run out of food and supplies and run out of fuel. Well, then what's going to happen? Well, eventually we'll sink to the bottom of the ocean and we're all going to die. That is the worldview a lot of people live out, live under, without really considering what they really believe. Because God's got it. History is going someplace. We're not just making meaningless circles in the ocean. We're going somewhere. History is not just a series of disordered, random, meaningless events. It's unfolding according to God's design, God's plan. And we see it in the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' ascension, Jesus' eventual return, our glorification. It's going somewhere. We understand there's a destination. We understand there's a plan. So life has meaning with God in the picture. So God's got it. Okay, so what? God's got it. I get it. Can I go watch the Broncos now? Well, hold on. Hold on just a minute. There's three implications that God's got it. And I think you'll like to hear this. The first is, verse 12, God's got it so we can enjoy it. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. How about that? God's got it so we can enjoy it. Since God's got it, it's not meaningless. It's not futile. We can enjoy it. Enjoyment of life is a gift from God. Solomon says he wants you. God wants you to find satisfaction in your work, enjoyment in your life. You ever hear that in church? God wants you to enjoy life more? I never heard that in church growing up. I, I grew up in a, a mainline church in the South, and I thought the purpose of church was to teach me to tolerate vast quantities of boredom. But here today, for someone in this room or someone online, a word for you is God wants you to enjoy your life more than you are. There's an old rabbinical saying. It's not in the Bible, but I think it's very wise. God will hold us accountable for every permitted pleasure not taken. God will hold us accountable for every permitted pleasure not taken. We get to heaven, God's going to say, hey, I, I gave you this and this and this for you to enjoy and for you to be blessed by, and you didn't take it. Why? Didn't you understand? I got it. You can enjoy it. Now, it's not carte blanche, all right? You can misapply this very quickly. Not everything in life is enjoyable, okay? 
We submit our enjoyment to what is good, not just what pleases our sinful self. But joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The second one listed when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit right after love. It must be important. It must be part of God's plan. So let me ask you, do you enjoy your life? Be honest with yourself. Do you enjoy your life? If you're married, what would your spouse say? Or your kids say? Or your parents say? Your coworkers, what would they say? Would you be on a list of people who most enjoyed life despite the pandemic? Why not? What's holding you back? Since God's got it, we can enjoy it. And there's more. Verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and God will call the past into account. Since God's got it, we can enjoy it. And since God's got it, we can live into it. We can live into it. So here's where we see that only God provides the solution to the problem of permanence, the problem that nothing lasts. Well, everything we do under the sun, under heaven, none of that stuff lasts. But everything God does will endure forever. And God invites us to participate in what he's doing through Christ and his kingdom. And everything God does through you, through us, through Castle Oaks Covenant Church, everything God does will endure forever, even if it's the smallest thing. An act of, of service, a word of kindness or forgiveness or mercy, a prayer prayed, everything God does will endure forever. So we don't have to do these great grandiose things to achieve permanence. Building a great company, having a great family, starting a great ministry, those things don't last. We don't have to do these grandiose, awe-inspiring things. We only have to do what God wants us to do. And he'll ensure that that endures forever. We have to live into it. So what does God want you to do? Are you already all about that? So good for you. Are you still kind of fuzzy on that? Take some time to explore it. You know, the, the word vocation comes from a Latin root, vocare, which means to call. So your vocation comes from the, the root word to call, calling. Whatever God blesses, that will last. Maybe your, your calling and your job kind of go together. Maybe they don't. Maybe your calling is, is something relational. Maybe your calling is something uh, in ministry. Maybe your calling is something you haven't quite landed on yet. But whatever it is, God's got it, so live into it. Explore it. Try things out. There are three huge gates that lead to the Cathedral of Milan in Italy. And over one gate, there's an inscription in, in marble under a flower bouquet that says, the things that please are temporary. Over the second gate, there's a cross with the inscription, the things that disturb us are temporary. But over the center gate, there's a big inscription that says, eternal are the important ones. 
What might God want to do through you for eternity this fall? Is what you're spending time on, is what you're giving your life to, is what you're stressing over going to count for anything in eternity? Pray about it. Talk to some others about it. Write it down. Live into it. God's got it. So we can live into it. Greg Lavoie says, picture a shriveled old soul sitting in a spiritual recliner. Abilities and gifts that never get cultivated and deployed until weeks become months, months turn into years. And one day you're looking back on a life of deep, intimate, gut-wrenching, honest conversations you never had. Great, bold prayers you never prayed. Exhilarating risks you never took. Sacrificial gifts you never offered. Lives you never touched, and you're sitting in a recliner with a shriveled soul and forgotten dreams. And you realize there was a world of desperate need and a great God calling you to be part of something bigger than yourself. You see the person you could have become and didn't. You never followed your calling. My prayer for you this morning is your new year, your new fall, this fall will be filled with soul-thrilling adventure for God. That you'll live into it and find new ways to live into it this season in new ways. Because since God's got it, we can enjoy it. And since God's got it, we can live into it. There's a third implication. Verse 16. I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Since God's got it, we can enjoy it, live into it, and we should stay with it. Because God is going to have the final word. At the end, God will bring judgment everywhere there was wickedness. And that should give us hope. We should stay with it. We should persevere in faith. We should persevere in trusting God. Stay with it, because God has the final word. What lasts and what doesn't, what's judged wicked and what's judged as righteous. Several years ago, I took uh, both my boys, who were aged nine and seven at the time, and uh, together we watched this movie, The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford, the 1973 best picture in the, uh, in the Oscars. How many of you have seen The Sting? Very good. I'm about to spoil this movie. I'm sorry, it's almost 50 years old. That's on you. <laughs> this is a very fun movie. I love this movie, and I wanted my, my boys to experience it. At nine and seven, there were also some things in the movie that kind of went over their heads, which was good. But it's fun. They, you know, they like Paul Newman. They like Robert Redford. They're con men, confidence men. And the story of the movie is how they're going to set up a sting, a big con, on a very wicked mobster played by Robert Shaw. So you're rooting for guys who are kind of on the other side of the law, but these guys make it really fun and seemingly make it justifiable because the, the villain they're going to is just a dastardly man. And so things go wrong, there's twists, there's turns, there's things you don't expect. But then at the very climax of the film, they've set up this 
big elaborate hoax. They're gonna trick this guy out of a bunch of money that wasn't his to begin with anyway. And then something unexpected happens. Uh, the feds have gotten word, they've been tipped off that this is going down and they burst in right at, right at the worst possible moment. And there's some gunplay. Paul Newman looks at Robert Redford, thinks he's double-crossed him and he pulls out a revolver and shoots him. Robert Redford falls to the floor. And then one of the police pulls out his gun and he shoots Paul Newman and Paul Newman falls over, slumps on the floor as though they're dead. And at that moment, there's this, this stunned silence in the movie. And my seven-year-old son looked at me with a look of horror and desperation on his face. He said, this is the worst movie ever. And I didn't want to spoil it for him. I told him, I know, I know, this is bad, but stay with it. Stay with it, because those two guys on the floor we've been rooting for the whole movie, well, they might not be as dead as you think. You know, I picture the disciples on Good Friday looking up at the cross as Jesus' lifeless body was taken down. And you know what they had to be thinking? He was the worst Messiah ever! I gave up my livelihood to follow him. My family's estranged because of him. I have no idea what I'm going to do now because of him. And I just wish I could whisper into those, their ears on Good Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's bad, but stay with it. Because that Messiah might not be as dead for as long as you think. God's got it. God has a plan. God promises to make everything right. So stay with it. Now often, life doesn't feel like God's got it. Often we can't find the joy in it, and we don't want to live into it. And you would ask, well, where was God when my marriage broke up? Where was God when my dream fell apart? Why did God make me like this, this way that I don't want to be? Why doesn't God deliver me from these circumstances or from this sin that I keep begging him to deliver me from? These are legitimate questions. They're legitimate, valid questions. But don't despair. God's word says, stay with it. Stay with him to the end. There are some in our world who try to dismiss Christianity by saying, well, it doesn't explain the problem of evil. It doesn't explain why there's, there's all this suffering and all this tragedy and wickedness in the world. And I guess that's true, but my question back is, well, what does? Nothing else explains that. No other worldview explains that either. At least in the Bible, we learn where evil comes from, that there's a a fallen, rebellious devil, that we live in a fallen world, that we're fallen, sinful people. And we get the promise of God's final judgment and God's final justice. And then the New Testament lets us in on that whole resurrection thing. God promises to make everything right, so stay with it to the end. And it looks like Dorothy won't get home to Kansas. It looks like Charlton Heston's never going to lead the children of Israel across the Red Sea. When it looks like the big mechanical shark is going to eat Roy Scheider. Or it looks like the Death Star is going to obliterate the fourth moon of the planet Yavin. Or it looks like the Titanic is going to sink. Oh, wait. Bad example. Scratch that one. 
Um, it looks like Frodo's never going to get out of Mordor. But stay with it to the end. And then the ending after that, and the ending after that, and the ending after that. It looks like Thanos is going to crush Iron Man. It looks like E.T. has died, and Harry Potter has died, and Ray from the Star Wars universe has died. But maybe they won't be dead for as long as you think. God's got it. So enjoy it. Live into it. Stay with it. Enjoy it. Live into it. Stay with it. I mentioned Charlton Heston. This is Charlton Heston as he appeared in the 1959 movie Ben-Hur, which won Best Picture and he won Best Actor for. Ben-Hur was directed by William Wyler, and the centerpiece of this movie is this great big elaborate chariot race. And they didn't have CGI back in 1959 when they were filming it, so they had to do a lot of it for real, in-camera type stuff. So this was very elaborate. They built this whole track. They had real horses. They had chariots. Sometimes Heston was on the back of a truck that was made up to look like a chariot. Sometimes he was in a real chariot. And at one point in the shoot, they've set everything up, hundreds of hundreds of people, extras everywhere, horses, outlined horse trainers, makeup people for Heston, lighting, all this kind of stuff. Everything's in place. So are we ready? Ready, 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 ready. Good. Okay. And action. And they cut to a, a shot of Heston. And he's in the chariot, and he's racing, and he's racing, and suddenly he stumbles, and he t- falls out of the chariot. And they say, okay, cut. Charlton, are you okay? Yeah, he's okay. All right. Reset. So this takes a long, long time. They have to put everything back as it was. Heston has to have his makeup, relight, everything. Okay, good. Are we set? Okay. Ready? 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 Yeah, we're ready. Okay. Weiler calls, and action. And they do it again. Heston's in the chariot, and he's trying to win the race, looking like he's winning the race, and suddenly the chariot goes over a bump, and he takes another tumble out of the shot and out of the chariot. And William Weiler says, okay, everybody, take five. Cut, take five. And he goes over to Charlton Heston, and he says, Charlton, you okay? What's going on here? And Heston is, is apologetic. He says, I'm sorry, Mr. Weiler. It's just that, you know, I, I'm, I'm seated here. I'm on this little platform, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to act like I'm winning the race, and, and when I take my eyes off my feet, I lose my footing, lose my balance. And I'm having trouble staying on this spot. And Weiler smiles and puts his arm around him and says, look, Charlton, you're the star of this picture. I'm the director. It's your job to stay in the chariot. It's my job to make sure you win the race. Your job is to stay in the chariot. My job is to make sure, as director, you win the race. I promise you're going to win this race in this movie. God is the author and the director of your life, my life, Castle Oaks Covenant Church. Our job is to stay with him. His job is to make sure we win the race. God's got it. Get it? Let me pray for us. Gracious Holy Lord, thank you for your grace to us, your help for us, your mercy for us, We know we have sinned and fall short of the glory you intend for us.
But we also know that through your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, all has been and will be made right. Gracious, merciful Father, please help us to take today from your word, through your spirit, what you want us to take away. It may not be the same thing for every person, but I do pray that we would have a greater understanding of your lordship, your mastery over creation, over our lives, over the events of the world, and that we would look forward with joy, anticipation, and faith in the days yet to come. It's in Jesus' name, for all our sakes, that I pray. Amen.